When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? And that depends, Dave. And what does it depend on, sir? If if you'll let us this time do the predictions at the beginning of the podcast instead of at the end. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Give me your prediction for Liverpool versus Manchester United. 6-0. <laughs> I love it. I and love now we it. get to sp- spend the next hour explaining why. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Um, so Liverpool take on Manchester United on Sunday. As we know, last season we lost at Old Trafford, but we hammered them 7-0 at Anfield. The previous season we beat them by an aggregate score of 9-0 over the two games. And... I think I saw yesterday that they haven't scored at Anfield since 2018. Now, let's start at the start, Carl. Last season, they finished third and won the EFL Cup. We finished fifth and had a mess of a season. And they got very excited by this. Their fans told us all summer long that they were now better than us, that Ten Hag was a genius and that it was only a matter of time before they were winning titles again. In the summer, they signed Mason Mount for £60 million, Andre Onana for £50 million, 
Rasmus Hoysland for in and around eighty million pounds. Altai Bindir, uh, Binder rather from Fenerbahce for about five million pounds. They brought in Sergio Regulon on loan, Sofian Amrabat on loan, and then they signed Johnny Evans originally just so he could stay fit during the summer and travel with them on their summer tour to play a bit and work on his fitness. And instead, he has actually become arguably their second best centre-back this season. What was your thoughts on them when you saw their summer business before a ball was kicked? When you saw them bringing in Mount, Onana, Hoysland, Regulon, and Amrabat, I know, I know some of them came in after the season had already started, but when you saw those signings, what was your expectation for United this season? Uh, not in the top four. That was my expectation. Um, I wasn't fond of the business that they did. I think the change to Anana, to be fair, I thought was expensive, but fine, because they needed to get away from De Gea one way or mm. another. I think that was a, a fundamental thing that United had to change. Even if they got it wrong first time, they needed to move away finally from the sort of the dependence and the longevity of him and the the, the way that he makes them play in defence, basically. So I was fine with the Onana thing. Obviously, he's had some individual horror shows. That's fine, but I, I still think that if you want to make you know a sea change in the way that you play and all the rest of it, you have to change centre backs and, and goalkeeper, even if it's a hard thing to do. Even if you get it wrong first time around, there's no point just staying on the same thing all the time if it's not the way you want to be. So I was all right with that. Mason Mount, I wasn't. I don't know where Mason Mount is supposed to fit. I didn't know mm. when he was where he was supposed to fit when they signed him for how they played last year. I don't know where Mason Mount was supposed to fit in the way that Ten Hag played at Ajax. I don't know where Mason Mount is supposed to fit in Man United now, months down the line. I really, really don't see his best traits being able to be shown in a specific role that they have at the minute. So given that I absolutely expected Liverpool to improve, um, I thought Newcastle would potentially improve a little bit more than they have done so, but obviously a part of that is injuries with them. Um, and given Arsenal and Man City uh, from, from last season, I didn't expect United to be in the top four. Mm. I will say I didn't expect United's performances to be as bad as they have been. Nowhere near. They've They've been lacking in anything identifiable is the worst thing I can say about them. I don't know how United plan to progress the ball from, let's say, left back in the 30th minute of a game that is still nil-nil, any more now than I did a year ago. It's just so fragmented. It's really, really reactive too much of the time. They still rely on little moments of matches rather than having a set way of playing regardless of the scoreline. And defensively, they are an absolute joke. There's no other way about it. So I'm glad you mentioned the defence. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely come to that because it's a big part of their issue. But the style of play, is, I think, is definitely the biggest part. When Eric Ten Hag was signed as Manchester United manager, or hired as Manchester United manager, the expectation was <clears throat> that he would bring the style of football that he used at Ajax and in his first game at United, they set out trying to play his brand of football and they lost at home to Brighton, managed by, at the time, Graham Potter. In the second game, they went to Brentford 
and got absolutely battered, got beaten 4-0. And at halftime in that game, they very clearly abandoned the idea that they were going to play this patient, build-from-the-back style of play. We're now 52 Premier League games on from that Brentford game, and they're yet to go back to that style. And we hear the manager say, I don't have the players to play the way I want to play. Okay, but haven't you spent well in excess of 400 million on this squad? Didn't you push for Onana? Didn't you push for uh, for uh, Lissandra Martinez? Wasn't he to be key of your build-up from the back? Didn't you push for Casemiro? Didn't you push for Anthony? Didn't you push for Mason Mount? And didn't you push for Rasmus Hoysland? I mean, that's a lot of money invested on players that you were insistent that you had to have to play your style of football. And yet here we are this far into your tenure. And the style of play is basically what we saw them do under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, which is to try and use the pace of players like Rashford and Garnacho and Hoysland on counterattacks. Now, they're a little bit more refined in some of their build-up than they were under Ollie when they tended to just resort to pumping balls over the top. But they don't look a well-coached team, Carl. And this season, across all competitions, Manchester United have played 24 games. 16 in the Premier League. Six in the Champions League. And two in the EFL Cup. In those 24 games, they have 11 wins, one draw, and 12 defeats. You've lost half your games this season. You finished bottom of a Champions League group that included Galatasaray and Copenhagen. And with with the greatest respect to both of those teams, who are good teams, Manchester United should not be finishing bottom of that group. They should not be taking four points from six games against those teams. Because Bayern are good, but Bayern are not great. Like, this is not one of the great Bayern teams that we remember. You lost away to them. You lost at home to them. Galatasaray, they're, I mean, they're good. By Premier League standards, they're probably a bottom half team. You lost at home to them. You drew away. And I genuinely think if Copenhagen were in the Premier League, they'd probably get relegated. Over the course of a full season, I think they'd probably get relegated. You did beat them at home, but you lost away. You beat Crystal Palace in the EFL Cup and got very excited and then got pumped by Newcastle in the next round. In the Premier League, you've been a complete mixed bag. And and by that, I mean a mixed bag of shit. You were very fortunate to beat Wolves. The referee missed a stonewall penalty. You got beaten by Spurs. You were 2-0 down to Nottingham Forest and were very, very fortunate to win that game. I do believe they were unlucky to lose to Arsenal. The Declan Rice goal should not have stood. Gabrielle fouled Johnny Evans, but it was given and you lost. 
He got absolutely demolished by Brighton and the Mesbury goal just made it look less embarrassing. You beat Burnley 1-0 away. Congratulations. You lost at home to Crystal Palace. You were 1-0 down to Brentford at home with 92 minutes gone in the game. And somehow you found a way to win. But they had missed a bunch of chances. You beat Sheffield United 2-1 away. You lost away to Manchester City. No, or at home to Manchester City, 3-0. No shame in losing to them, but the manner of the performance was less than stellar. You beat Fulham 1-0 away with a last gasp goal after they'd missed a bunch of chances. You beat Luton 1-0 at home through Victor Lindelof scoring. You beat Everton 3-0 away. You probably should have been 3-1 down by half time, but you did win 3-0. You lost away at Newcastle. 1-0 flattered you. It could have been 4 or 5. You beat Chelsea at home. Congrats. And then Bournemouth went to your place and absolutely slapped the shit out of you. Like, if I look at their season, Carl, they've won one game against a team that were in the top half of the Premier League when they beat them, and that was Chelsea. They've won one game against the current top half of the league, that's Fulham. Both Fulham and Chelsea were, were, 10th is the position, the common position there. So you've beaten nobody in the top nine. Also nobody with a positive goal difference. And nobody with a positive goal difference. And across your 24 games, with a team that includes a 70-odd million winger that you insisted on buying, Eric Ten Hag, and an 80 million pound striker that you insisted on buying, you have a negative goal difference of minus six across your 24 games. You have scored 33 goals, but you have conceded 39 goals. I don't even know what you would look at in terms of a positive with this car. Like, it, there's no positive at all to be taken from anything they've done this season. I think the only real things he can pick to are, let's say, facts, as a as a previous manager of ours might say. Um, and that is the fact that they somehow remain three points off fifth. And that obviously they're going to have an opportunity in uh, in domestic cup action. You know, fine, they've, they've not exactly set the world alight, so you wouldn't imagine that they're going to be a challenger for it, but they've still got another competition to go. Um, that they would have a little bit more time training in between games, recovery in between games now, because there's not, not just no League Cup, there's not just no Champions League, there's no European Cup at all now after Christmas for them for finishing bottom of that group. Mm. Um, those are the things that you would look at if you are Ten Hag and having to to come up with some positives at the moment. And we already know one of the other ones he's going to point to, which... Personally, I don't place too much stock in. Uh, I don't honestly know how much he does either, but he keeps mentioning it, and that's the takeover or the the partial purchase of the company, obviously. So once in AOS are, are in place, let's say the distraction, if it isn't even remotely is for any of those players, can't be used as an, as an excuse anymore, might sharpen a few minds, might provide uh, another, I don't know, signing in January. Is that another thing that he wants now? Um, these are things which are true. Um, you know, regardless of what you believe about the the takeover, it is getting close, and eventually it will be done. So, 
these things are things to lean on. And especially, I think, being three points off fifth, because if United do finish, let's say fifth this season, right, and they are within a handful of points of, of fourth, you can, as a, a reliable truth, point to up to six, seven, maybe even eight teams if Chelsea eventually start you know, being any kind of consistent, uh, being com- competitive enough for Champions League spots. So I think that that would be a thing they point to. But the reality of the performances, and like you say, the teams that they have and haven't beaten, United are nowhere near the top four. They might be six points away from Man City, but they are light years away from Man City. And this is six points away from a Man City team who have just gone four games without a win up until last weekend. Mm. It, it's, it's not likely to be repeated again in the second half of the season. A lot of people are putting a lot of faith into Ineos and the takeover and what that might mean. Ineos bought Nice in 2019. And in the first season they were in charge, Nice finished fifth. In the second season, ninth. In the third season, fifth. Last season, ninth. Now this season they are second. But it has been noted by a number of people that Ineos and especially Jim Ratcliffe are taking far less interest in what Nice are doing this season because the focus is on buying Manchester United. They also own Lausanne, who play in Switzerland and are currently eighth in the league and 15 points off top. Last season, they were promoted from the second division, having been relegated the previous season under their ownership. These are not people with a great track record of success in football. This idea that Jim Ratcliffe knows how to run a football club doesn't really have any basis in reality. His teams have underperformed under his stewardship. But you mentioned the idea that he might go and buy more players in January. Now tell me if I'm being harsh here, Carl. Terrell Malashia... We've seen nothing yet to suggest he's good enough to play in the Premier League. Christian Eriksen's been okay at best for them. Lissandro Martinez has been okay at best, and their results without him are actually better than the results with him since he signed. Casemiro was good last year, has been a disaster so far this season, can't stay on the pitch, either gets injured or suspended. Anthony has been an unmitigated disaster. Dubravka was a flop. Butland was a, was didn't play. Veghorst was a disaster. And Sabitzer wasn't a very good signing either. This season, so far, Mount looks a completely horrible fit. Like you said, what's the position for him? His two positions are 10 or off the left. They're the positions occupied by Bruno Fernandes, and Marcus Rashford, who are the two best players at the club. Andre Onana has been really, really poor thus far, but it is early. Hoijland looks completely out of his depth. Zero goals in the Premier League. Zero assists in the Premier League. Five goals in the Champions League. But, like, let's be fair. He scored two against Copenhagen, two against Galatasaray, and one against Bayern. It's not like they were all against elite-level competition. And then 
the Inder hasn't played, Regulon has been poor, and Amrabat has been poor. What good signing can he point to and say, this is proof that I have a good eye for talent? Who's the player he can point to and say, look, this is my player. I brought him to this club and he has been tremendous. There isn't one. Now, that's not just a him thing, because you can look at United signings from the last five or six years and you probably only point to Bruno Fernandes and say he's been a really good signing. They've wasted money left, right and centre, but he has wasted a staggering amount of money with absolutely no return on investment for the owners. So why should they back him further, Carl? Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. Well, uh, look, I think partly the answer is Ten Hag hasn't done any kind of improvement with players. Um, also, I think that it, we've spoken about this before. I think it's a massive cultural thing at United where they still seem to be empowered with some sort of aura thinking we're United, we'll get the job done one way or another and don't have to put any regularly incredible performance levels in, in the way that, let's say, Real Madrid sometimes get away with domestically, have done in Europe. Um, United haven't been that or that level for, for years. So I don't really know why it's the case, but you can see as soon as some players go there, they do have that kind of stature or personality about them on the pitch where previously maybe they didn't. Um, I don't really know what the answer is in terms of bringing players in and they succeed, but the coaching isn't there at the minute. I will say that. I I, I don't doubt that Ten Hag has, has done really good work before and when he joined United, we heard from everybody from groundsmen to you know previous players he binned off and then they realised the error of their ways and that he was right and all the rest of it. But we've seen no evidence of it at United mm. that he improves a player that he improves a player no, because even really their best ones, Fernandez, I think he's been worse over the last 18 months than he was the previous 18 months by a distance. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I would say any of them, to be honest, even the ones who were not elite before, but were just generally good people like Victor Lindelof. They've taken a step back. Either, yeah, yeah. Either a step back or actually forced back. Scott McTominay, another one who would be perfectly serviceable as a, let's say previous era Man United player similar to you know a Park or a Fletcher or whoever like that literally forced out of the team and mm. left to do nothing until nobody else had any answers and his mentality and his style of play made United get some answers but it wasn't anything to do with the coach whatsoever so here's the thing if you were to look at United this season you would have to say Harry Maguire has been their best performing centre back Eric Ten Hag tried very, very hard to push Harry Maguire out the door. Last season, 
he started eight Premier League games, had eight appearances off the bench, 16 starts in all competitions, plus 15 further off the bench. In the summer, the manager tried to push him out the door to West Ham. He has been their best centre-back this season. Now, it's a very low bar, but he has been their best centre-back. McTominay, the manager also tried to push him out the door in the summer. 10 Premier League starts last season, 14 sub-appearances. 16 starts in all competitions, 23 sub-appearances. In the summer, the manager tried to push him out the door. This season, 10 Premier League starts, three off the bench, 14 starts in all competitions, four off the bench. He's their top scorer, Carl, in both the Premier League and all competitions. He has six goals for them. And when you look at their results, he got their third goal against Galatasaray. Now, it put them 3-1 up. They should have won the game, but it is the goal which technically got them a point. He got both goals to win them the Chelsea match. He got both goals to win them the Brentford match. And he scored the opener at Sheffield United. This is a player, again, the manager tried to force out the door. Without this player, they would have finished their Champions League group with three points rather than four, which doesn't really make any difference. But in the league, they'd have seven points less without his goals. Which means that you know, them pointing to the fact they're only three points off fifth wouldn't be a thing now. They'd have lost to Chelsea and they'd have lost to Brentford and probably only drawn with Sheffield United. And you can look at it and say, oh, well, someone else might have got those goals. But no one else in their squad does the things he does. No one else in their squad has that running power from midfield. No one else in their squad gets into the box from midfield the way he does. No one else has that size that he does. So I don't know that any other United player would have actually scored those goals had they been used instead of him. I just think it's a damning indictment that here we are this far into his tenure as manager. There's not one player we can look at and say has been a success as a signing overall. There's not one player we can look at and say the manager has improved him. United fans will say, oh, well, Garnacho, but that's natural development, natural progression. That's an elite level prospect. He was going to be very good regardless. And he very good is probably a stretch. But I want to read you something that was sent to me. And I want your view on this. So this person said to me, um, what do you think the problem is at United? My take is that the fans and former players are, are the main problem the high expectations for how good they think the team is. It's like they think it's still 2008. The pressure that is put on on the players from that group seems to break them and ruin them. They think they should be winning titles galore. Watch how Rashford and Shaw took off their medals from the Euros. It's the best result England has had since 1966, and they think it was below them not to win. I think that speaks to a highly entitled culture at the club. And I don't want to hear about the owners not fixing the roof. That doesn't make Rashford... Oh, sorry. I don't hear about the owners not fixing the roof, um, Rashford not tracking back or, or Bruno giving up because that's not the owner's fault. So, like, basically, what this person is saying is he thinks, like, I, that's it's kind of what you said earlier. 
they seem to still think that they're Manchester United of the Alex Ferguson era. But a lot of it is the pressure that comes from outside the fan base and the the former players. It, it doesn't seem like Ten Hag has been able to create a new culture within the club. What do you think of that? Yeah, I would agree with obviously quite a big part of it. Um, I think the former United players is is a bit obviously a, a big group which isn't necessarily accurate. Um, I think that there are some who who forget what they're seeing or can't really notice what they're seeing. Um, I don't think Gary Neville actually has a very good grasp of what he's seeing when he watches Man United. He mm. thinks that some really, really basic shit from them is good. And but he's watching it as a fan, good. isn't he? He's not he, taking the step back and taking a 10,000 feet view. He's watching it as a fan. That's, I, I don't know if it's he's watching it as a fan and he wants it to be good, which is understandable, but wrong. I don't know if it is that he is not watching enough of other teams because then he's judging it against what United have done previously rather than where United need to be now to challenge. Or I don't know if it is that he's judging it against how his teams played in and they won because we're miles beyond that right now. This is, this is a different kind of football game required to win the Premier League now than it was in his time. But whichever one of those things it is, when he looks at United, he picks out things which are not as good as he says they are, or he overlooks the things which are dreadful or nowhere near as good as other teams who are good. On the other hand, just to stick with the same uh, broadcaster, let's say, because there are obviously a lot of United former players in in, in media. Um, Roy Keane, for example, I find pretty much on point with what I think, with what he says is wrong. Not necessarily I agree with him with the things that he says is right, because again, I think he undercooks it a little bit sometimes, but when he points out that things are either wrong or that's just what it should be, I mostly think that that's right. Obviously, Keane, with, you know, from a mentality perspective, is, is very, very different and in many ways unique, and, and not everybody is going to be able to, to cope with that level of expectation of what they should be doing. But I think he's right a lot of the time. He doesn't give them praise for doing you know very, very marginal, basic stuff which got them a victory. He is quite... I think correct in what he says a lot of the time about United were better, but yeah, nothing to write home about kind of thing. I think most of the time I agree with him a lot more than I do with Gary Neville. So all the, all the former players is definitely a thing, but I don't think that you can group them all as one. And also I don't think that should make any difference at all. I really, really don't like all we ever hear from the players and from coach and staff and all the rest of it. Oh, we don't listen to any outside views and all the rest of it. Well, you might not listen to it, but you still hear it. That's but you clearly do listen to it, though. Yeah. Like, you clearly do. And and you're right. Like, with Keane, with Keane's thing is he doesn't praise people for doing their job. So he doesn't get carried away with the small things that, that they should just do because they're professional footballers playing for Manchester United. And I always found the discourse over Pogba to be quite representative of the fan base and where United are, when you'd see genuinely great players, great midfielders like Roy Keane and Graham Souness hammer Pogba week after week after week and talk about the standards required and Keane talking about it from a Manchester United perspective, what should be required at Manchester United. And the two of them 
were lambasted by the United fan base. Paul Pogba was one of the biggest flops in the history of the Premier League. He had one good season from six years there. Those two were right in what they said. The likes of Neville and Rio, those two primarily, they didn't want to hold Paul Pogba accountable. They wanted to laud him for the minor things and ignore the major issues. And I think it is a generational thing where those older players, and Keane played with with Neville and he played with Rio for a short time, but his mindset is an older mindset. His mindset is more similar to players from the 80s and the 70s like Sunas. And they have this way of looking at the game and breaking it down to its most basic form. Do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. Whereas, like you say, with Neville, he gets so excited about the smallest, most minor thing. Rio is the exact same. Everybody remembers Rio getting all excited, rubbing his hands together and shouting that Manchester United were back because they'd won a game. A game. Not not a title, not a trophy. A game. It's like... It's like there's there's these big expectations on the club, but yet when people like them talk about the club, they set low expectations, like really low expectations. Like, for example, like Ollie when he was in charge. It was so obvious from minute one that Ollie was not good enough to manage Manchester United. All you have to do is look at what he'd done prior. And yet, you've got Neville and Rio would go on national television and laud what they were seeing and try and tell us we were seeing something that we hadn't seen. So, I think you're right, like, to group in all the, the 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 players, like there is pressure that comes from them. And whenever a former Manchester United player talks about United, they always refer back to the Ferguson era and they try and set that as the bar. But then you do have others who, who don't hold them accountable nearly enough. Um, it was Jesper Paulson that sent that in to me. And I, I do think he's nailed a lot of it. Like I do think there's... There's part of it where the players, they think they're playing for this all-encompassing machine that just wins and wins and wins and wins. But at the same time, they know that they're going to be allowed to skate by week after week for poor performances because certain people, certain prominent people will never criticize them. They won't be held to account. So there's a weird mix where there's really high expectations, but also really low expectations. There's high expectations of the the team and low expectations of the individuals. And that's really, really strange to me. Yeah, it's definitely a thing which I think is, you mentioned England earlier, I think it's like a bit of a mirror of that, basically, where 
actually this team is like really good, but still there's this odd history thing of not achieving, which kind of you know impacts the way that people think about them or talk about them or even the way some of those players go out and play beforehand and what they have to talk about and what they're asked about and all the rest of it. So it really shouldn't have anything to do with it. And it's obviously a very separate and interesting to many people area of sports psychology. It definitely affects things, even though in reality, in an isolated fixture, it, it shouldn't. There's no reason why it should, but it does. Um, but United, this is this is like a decade of it now. Like there's no... It's one thing like on an international scene where tournaments come around every you know, two years, four years for a World Cup, whatever... This is Man United year after year, month after month. The daily following of them as fans is, it must be bizarre because there are definitely a a section of fans who still think the exact same way, that United are massive. Man United massive. What if they reach the quarterfinals of the Champions League once in 10 years? Mm. Like, how is that massive? Like, you are... (sighs) Underachievers at this point. Just... It's very, very poor, the structure. There is no there is no platform for continued success at this moment. And I include in that ownership group all the way down to playing stuff. Like even, yeah, I, I would actually, I would include playing stuff in that, to be perfectly honest, because not enough of them who are good enough from one year to another can keep that consistency. Not enough of them who, let's say, really shone and helped them get to, uh, two cup finals, for example, are really doing anything at all this year. None of oh. them who were excellent in, in the COVID season behind closed doors and took United to second have been able to maintain that for three years. None of them. No, that's the thing. But, I mean, it starts at the top. It starts with the manager. And the manager just seems to have one excuse after another. And, like, this is a guy who... when he When he first took the job, he talked about ending the era of... Pep versus Klopp. And now, 18 months into him being there, it's, I, I don't have the players. You know, we need to do this. This is wrong. Blah, blah, blah. So he's an issue. He do, he wouldn't inspire confidence in anybody. And then you look below and you think, right, well, who's the, who's the leader on the pitch? Because we grew up with Manchester United, Brian Robson as captain, an outstanding leader. Steve Bruce, an outstanding leader. Eric Cantona, an inspirational leader. Roy Keane is the best captain of the Premier League era. Gary Neville, not a great player, but had a great career, had a lot of gravitas at United, knew what it was to win, was a model professional. You could see why he was given the armband. And remember, this is also with Ferguson there, so... All Ferguson was looking was for was somebody to just translate his message after the, the, the situation with Keane. Vidic, excellent player, natural leader. Then Rooney becomes captain. Tremendous player, obviously. Never someone I would have tagged as a leader, as a captain. Would lead by example in some ways, but then... Other times you'd look at some of the behavior and some of the antics, you know, trying to force his way out of the club at different times and falling out with the manager and some of the off-field behavior. And you think, is he really the one you want setting an example in the post-Ferguson era? So we're we're post-Ferguson now with, 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 with Rooney. Then Michael Carrick takes over as captain for a year. 
he's been there a long time. He's he's won a lot. He was a tremendous player. You can see why you'd give him the armband for a year. But then it's like Antonio Valencia, who's bang average. What's he leading? Who's he leading? Nobody's looking to him for inspiration. The same with Ashley Young. And then it's Harry Maguire, who's a figure of fun for opposing fans, who's making mistakes week after week, whose head goes when he makes mistakes. And now their captain is Bruno Fernandes. A less inspiring figure you would go a long way before you'd find. A guy who last season at Anfield just gave up. He just gave up. He stopped playing. His team were getting ragdolled. It was embarrassing. And he gave up. And just before we play them this season at Anfield, he purposely goes out of his way to pick up a yellow card for descent. Almost as if he didn't want to play in the game. But why is Bruno the captain? Because who else would it be? Who are you looking at in that team and thinking, you know what? You'd go to war behind him. It's not the manager. There's none of the players. Lissandro Martinez might charge head first into a war. He'd be the first he get shot because he's he's just way off the rails. There's no one at that club at the playing level that you think can grab hold of a team and drag them over the line. There's no one at that club like a Virgil who you just think he would be the type you'd want to get behind. Like if we didn't have Klopp and we still had Virgil, you'd still bank on things being done the right way. There's nobody at United that you would have real faith in to lead people through tough times. Manager, playing staff, or above them. Like, there's nobody there. It's a void above Ten Hag. John Murtaugh. Who's he? He came to Everton, came from Everton with Moyes and somehow skulked around when Moyes got sacked and weaseled his way into a position of power. Richard Arnold was the CEO up until he resigned. The guy was in a pub taking the piss out of the fans. Like, who is there at that club that you would bet on to steer the ship in the right way? There isn't one single person that I could look at, not one. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index.
Thank you. Bye-bye. That is, I guess, why there's an acceptance of Ineos coming in and uh, taking over the football side, shall we say. I don't know how quickly they think that that's going to impact matters. Um, I, I don't expect it to be quick, let's put it that way. Even if they make players available, it's still going to be, sorry, funds available to sign someone in January. It's still going to be the same decision group, basically. Uh, who are saying we need this player, this type of player, this exact one, this is how much we're going to pay for them or we're willing to pay for them. This is still going to be the same coaching group who is going to try and integrate them into a team and be directing them and trying to make them have what, I, I don't even know, what kind of an impact does someone need to come in in January and make on this team to make them competitive? There's so many deficiencies front to back, on and off the ball. I don't really see, unless you're saying, three players are coming in and all of them are not just technically great, but tactically superb mentality is off the, off the charts. How is that going to make too much of a difference to any point this season? I just don't see how it does. I don't see how it does. And I also, I do wonder if like it's very much being slow rolled this takeover. And I do wonder if part of that is to get beyond January as an excuse not to spend. Like, I don't know, maybe you've heard different, but it doesn't seem like it's a whole lot closer than it was a month ago. So, I don't know, it's really, really weird. It's it's a, it's a not even it's not even a takeover. You're buying a minority share. That shouldn't take this long. I just think there's so many issues at that club from the top to the bottom. I mean, I'll always just remember... Pogba, having just flattered to deceive for years, let them down over and over and over and over again. Captaining them, like, late in 2021, in the 2021 season. And I remember thinking, like, we've been here before. Why is this guy being rewarded? What is it about this club where they're rewarding somebody who lets them down as often as Paul Pogba does? We know the armband doesn't inspire him to play better because he's worn it 10 or 12 times before. He was stripped of the vice captaincy by Mourinho. Like, I just... It is a, it's such a strange thing with them. Like, we, we grew up in an era watching them dominate English football. It was... As a Liverpool fan, it was horrendous. But as a football fan, you had this grudging admiration for what a machine they were, how they did everything right. Every time a new contender popped up, they might have some success. Blackburn won a title. But you, but they, they found a way to crush them eventually. And eventually they crushed Blackburn they crushed Newcastle. They crushed us. They crushed Arsenal eventually. The Chelsea takeover was a big part of that as well. But they saw off Mourinho's Chelsea. They saw off City in the early days of City having the money. City won one title, but United won two. No matter who it was, they always got the better of them. You know, Chelsea get all the money. They win two titles. So United run off three in a row. 
that great seven-year rivalry with Arsenal. Yeah, Arsenal won three titles. United won four and a European Cup. They always, they always did the right things. And now you'd really struggle since Ferguson left to point at one thing they've done, whether it's buying a player or hiring a manager or something they've done, you know, to improve the stadium or, or the training ground. There's nothing in a decade that you'd look at and say, that's something Ferguson would have done. That's what they would have done when they were great. It's like when Ferguson retired, the entire DNA of the club just went away and something else was put in in its place. It's really weird. Since, not just since Ferguson left, but like, I spoke before about 12, 13, that was the last time they won the Premier League, yeah? So the following season, they reached the quarterfinals of the Champions League. So it's 10 seasons since that quarterfinal appearance now. They've reached the quarterfinals once since then. Mm. We mentioned that before. But take away the fact that they've gone out, right? Here's what they've actually done in Europe since that quarterfinal appearance in 13-14. No Europe at all. Champions League group stage. Only in the Europa League. They did win it that year, but they weren't even in the Champions League to begin with. Then they were in the Champions League, got to the last 16. And then their one quarterfinal appearance. Then Europa again. Then the group stage. Then the last 16 again. Then the Europa again. And this year, the group stage again. In those, in that decade, have a guess how many Champions League matches United have won. Oh, in a decade. Um, uh, 10 years, you get six matches minimum if you're in it. 10. They weren't in it every year, as I've just read out, but yeah, it's 10 years. Right. I'm going to say 10 games they've won? 12? It's a tiny bit higher. It's 17 in 10 years. Yeah, it's not good, is it? And most of them, in fact, almost all of them are group stage group games. Group stage games against Fodder. Wolfsburg, yeah, against, of course. CSK in Moscow. Basel. Two more against CSK the following year and two against Benfica. Then they had young boys they beat twice. Juve in a group stage game that Juve didn't need to win anymore. And they beat PSG in that turnaround game for, for Solskjaer. The following season, then they beat PSG in the group again and Leipzig. And they beat Basaksa here and still went out because they absolutely shit the bed for the last, uh, for the second half of that group stage. And then in their most recent, uh, attempt of uh, winning games Villarreal uh, twice and Atalanta and that brings us up to obviously this season so realistically you'd say the PSG wins are, are good wins yeah the Juve game was a dead rubber for Juve they didn't need to win Leipzig you could say is a good result and I, I think they didn't they hammer Leipzig am I right in thinking they hammered Leipzig I can't remember if that was the 3-2 or something like that. It might, I might be misremembering that one. There was two good games at the start of that group stage where they got results, and then they basically failed to get through somehow after six points from two matches. Like, there's very little to hang your hat on there. The only thing they've done in Europe in the last decade that's what you would really tag as a success is is winning the Europa League under Mourinho. Yeah. Uh, you know... 
And like you said, that came in a season where they hadn't even qualified for the Champions League. And if I'm not mistaken, they finished like sixth or seventh in the Premier League that season while also winning the the League Cup. So, you know, it's a good season because you won two trophies, but your domestic form was was an atrocity. They never... They came sixth. Sixth, yeah. So Jose's first year, I think. So they've, they've never... They've never managed to finish in the top four while getting beyond the group stage, have they? Uh, since that quarterfinal one? No, in fact, not since... Not since the last season they won the title. Yeah. They got... They, in seventeen eighteen they came second and reached the round of 16. So just that once. Just once. Once in 10 years, they and finished only- in the... And that was 17-18, which was a really weird season. But, you know, they finished second. Weren't they 18 points behind City that year? So it's not like they even sustained any sort of challenge in the Premier League. Like, and in that 10-year in that period as well, they've won one knockout game. Like, it's just... It is just dreadful. Although I realise now I have done them a disservice. It's not 17, it's 18, because I forgot the win over Cape Hagen from this year. Oh, well, that makes all the difference. I mean, <laughs> what have we, we been should, talking about? We should delete this part now. We should. It's been a great It's been a great decade for them. But it's just, like, it's so funny. In the, in the decade leaving up to Ferguson's departure, they win five titles in the decade since they've won none. You know, they've won one FA Cup. They've won two League Cups. And they've won a Europa League in 10 years. Like that's, it's just so, so poor. In the 10 years prior to him going, like I said, five league titles, one FA Cup, three league cups, and a Champions League. It's it's like two different clubs, Carl. They just... They're a shell of what they once were. Well, that's probably right. They they are two different clubs. There was the one where you had a face holding accountability from everybody, more than mm. likely, those above and below him, and then a club afterwards where that figure's not there, and others of lesser standards were allowed to hold positions, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean, look, the thing to look at with United, and I, I highlighted this on Two Footed about two years ago, maybe, If you look at Manchester United without Ferguson and without Matt Busby, they've won two league titles. They've won three FA Cups. They've won two league cups. And that's it, really. Like, they've had two periods of success. And that's not, you know, that's quite normal. You know, a lot of clubs are are the same. But... It's only really been when they've had a a genuine all-timer as a manager that they've won anything of note. And, like, Ten Hag certainly is not going to go down as an all-timer. Like, he is... He's probably a decent manager at a club where... Like, if you put him at West Ham for example, I could see him doing quite well, relatively speaking. 
to the standard at which West Ham want to play and want to succeed, I think he could live to that. But not at a club that has this innate belief that they belong in the very small circle of contenders every year, Champions League deep runs every year. He he cannot get them there. And again, I've said this before, everybody connected to United who tries to defend them, be it fans, be it former players, whatever, they always look and say, oh, well, like, I mean, he won three league titles with Ajax. Yeah, he did. He won three league titles with Ajax. Frank De Boer won four. What Frank De Boer did at Ajax was more impressive than what Ten Hag did. He won four in a row in three and a half years, having taken over a mess. Turned things around, won four league titles. Since leaving then, he's failed at Inter Milan and been sacked after 14 games, failed at Crystal Palace and been sacked after five games. I think it would be fair to say he failed with with Atlanta, considering what they'd done before he got there. He lasted 55 games. He failed with the Netherlands and they sacked him after 15 games. And his most recent spell as a manager has been with Al Jazeera in the United Arab Emirates, where he has been sacked after 15 games. So just because someone does well with Ajax doesn't translate to success anywhere else. I I think United fans just need to accept that Eric Ten Hag is not going to get you where you want to go. If you're willing to completely change your expectations and you're happy to compete with the Aston Villas and Spurs and Newcastles of the world where you might get fourth every second or third or fourth year and you could have some decent domestic cup runs and maybe you can become you know, kind of a Europa League force and maybe that's your back door into the Champions League, then maybe he can be that for you. But if you have ambitions to win the Premier League title or win the European Cup, I, I just don't see how it's ever going to get there with him. We're 18 months in. There's no discernible style of play. Defensively, they're a train wreck. The midfield looks like a group of lads that have never played together before. And their attack is... I mean, Carl, like, let's let's look at this attack this season. It's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. Victor Lindelof has one league goal. Bruno Fernandes has three. Anthony Martial has one. Marcus Rashford has two, one of which was a penalty he was given despite the fact Bruno was on the pitch. Uh, Christian Eriksen has won. Garnacho has won. Casemiro has won. Varane has won. Delo has won. McTominay has five. And Mejbri has won. You have gotten zero league goals from Mason Mount, £60 million attacking midfielder. Zero league goals from Rasmus Hoijund, £80 million striker. Um, and zero league goals from Anthony, a 70 odd million winger. And obviously, zero league goals from Jaden Sancho, another 70-odd million winger, who is currently not considered for selection because he hurt the manager's feelings. That's an awful lot of money producing absolutely nothing. And 
even Rashford. I mean, Rashford has been a shambles this season. Bruno has been a shambles this season. There is not one single attacker at United who can hold their hand up and say, I have played well this season. Not one. Even Garnacho. I don't think he could in in real conscience hold his hand up and say he's played well this season. But at least he can say, I've given a shit. Whereas I don't think the rest of them can. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, Mac boxes and games consoles. Visit LibertyShield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. It's a lovely stat there from Guy uh, he's just put in. So if it's wrong, you can blame him. Jaden Sancho is the last Man United forward to score at Old Trafford in the Premier League. I mean, how long is it now since he's been banished? Well, he got dropped for the Arsenal game, um, which was their fourth game of the season. He was dropped for that. He'd been a sub in the first three games and he hasn't been seen since. So, you know, it's it's been a while. It's been a while. He is right. Sancho scored the opener on the last day of last season against Fulham. And that's the last time an attacker has scored for United at Old Trafford. Varane, Eriksen, Casemiro, Bruno, Mejbri, McTominay, Lindelof and McTominay have scored the goals at Old Trafford since. And last season, United kind of hung their hat on their home form. They were good at home. This season, they've lost at home to Brighton, lost at home to Palace, lost at home to City, lost at home to Bournemouth, and were dreadful in the Wolves, Nottingham Forest and Brentford games. And they weren't particularly good against Luton either. Like, there's there's nothing that this manager can point to. Even in the non-Premier League games, Garnacho scored one in the League Cup, Martial got one in the League Cup, and Hoysland got two in the League Cup. And that's it. So you've got four goals at home from attackers this season in all competitions. And you lost that game to Galatasaray. You lost to Bayern. You lost at home to Newcastle. Their only good home performance this season is that 3-0 win over Crystal Palace in the League Cup. 
That's it. That's that's the only thing they have to point at this season at home at Fortress Old Trafford, as they called it last season. I was just going into quick... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, no, no, fire ahead. I was just going to say, going into this weekend, they've got a, a raft of injuries, but go with what you had. Uh, I was just looking at the uh, differences in, in basically shooting output from the squad last season to, to this season as well. Um, with the exception of Garnacho, who only played about 500 league minutes last season, all of their main attackers are down this season on shots per 90 uh, and certainly shots on target per 90 as well. So Rashford, Anthony, uh, Martial haven't actually found him on the list for this season yet. He's so far down. So let's assume that he's definitely worse off. Uh, yes, he is. Yep, a good lot worse off. The only one who was very, very marginally up is Bruno Fernandes. Uh, last season was 2.5 shots per 90 and this season is 2.6 shots per 90. But actually his on targets is down as well. Mm. So Because he's shooting from ludicrous positions. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's it's such a weird disconnect that they have there between any kind of builder play and any kind of actual end product as well. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Going into this game, and I'm going to take a deep breath before I start this because this is this is an impressive list of absentees. No Terrell Malashia, no Carlos Casemiro, no Lisandro Martinez, no Christian Eriksen, no Bruno Fernandez. Mason Mount's a major doubt. Victor Lindelof is a doubt. Martial's a doubt. Rashford's a doubt. Sancho's out. Diallo's out. Maguire is a major doubt. And Luke Shaw's a major doubt. I think we can rule out Maguire and Luke Shaw. I think we can probably rule out Mason Mount. They might get Lindelof back. Rashford and Martial have an illness or a virus or something. They will probably be back. But neither of them are starters. Rashford has been dropped of late and is coming off the bench. So even if he does come back, I don't expect him to start. So what are we actually expecting from them, Carl? I mean, Onana will be in goal. Are we going to see Delo and Wan-Bissaka as the fullbacks with Delo having to play left back? That seems likely. Then Maguire and Evans in the middle? No, it can't be Evans. So Varane and Evans in the middle? It can't be Evans, can it? No, Evans Evans is back. Evans is back and available. But you're thinking Maguire misses because he missed midweek. Or he came, he, off in midweek. came off injured. So I think he'll miss out. So I think it's going to be Varane and Evans. I mean, Varane, <laughs> who doesn't want to be there and they don't want anymore, and apparently it's it's been reported by The Athletic, is actually out of contract this coming summer. Which again just speaks to what a stupid football club they've been. You spent the better part of forty million pounds to buy that fella and gave him a three-year contract. Now, I suppose in one way it's better than having to pay his wages next season, but you gave him a three-year contract when you're laying out that kind of money. That doesn't seem ideal. Um, I wonder if maybe it obviously was part of a, a terrible, terrible performance, but maybe Regulon comes back in at left back. So he did play against Bournemouth. Yeah, but he was God awful. But how much I mean, if he does play, play, it's party time for Mo. Shaw was, I think, centre back inside him at that point. He was. And then Shaw. Amrabat, Amrabat started that side in midfield and was like all over the shot. So I don't know how much blame I would really put on Regulon for that performance. I'd look at the first goal, Carl, and I'd watch him just stand still as Lewis Cook 
not known for pace, sprints by him and he stands watching him. It wasn't a good performance, but I don't think I would blame him for the performance. That's what I'm saying. Like, especially oh, no, not the, what, the, three three games in. Yeah, no, not, not the overall performance. Uh, Malashi is injured again, that guy. Um, right. Well, let, let's say it's let's say it's um, it's regular. I mean, that's that's to me that's worse than playing Delow there because defensively he's he's an atrocious player. Um, midfield. I mean, they don't really have any options. It's going to be Hammerbat and McTominay, surely. I mean, maybe, maybe Maynou comes in. Maybe Maynou comes in, but I mean, for all the hype, I'm yet to see anything that suggests he's going to be this world beater. Every time he's been on the pitch, United have been comprehensively outplayed. And Twatman Dave tried to tweet out some stats the other day about 100% passing completion, 100% duels won, 100% tackles won. Well, first of all, it was 90% passing completion, nine successful passes out of 10. Secondly, he had one duel, which was also his tackle. So they can hype him up all they want. I've seen every minute that kid has played in the Premier League, and he's definitely talented. But this idea that he's going to fix the midfield in the short term is, is bizarre. Like he's he's miles away from being able to physically influence Premier League games. He got roasted at Everton. They won the game, but he got monstered in midfield over and over again. And Everton midfield without Onana, by the way. So I, I don't know, maybe they bring him in, so you go with him, him and Amrabat and you push McTominay into the number ten position. I mean that's What about Medbury, Hadable Medbury? He's a bit more combative, at least, and maybe they go with a three. Yeah, I mean, he'll come on. If he plays, he's definitely getting sent off. He'll definitely get sent off. He's, I love the attitude he has. I think if they had more players with his attitude, they would be a lot better off. He will come on and he will kick and fight and bite and snarl and do everything that needs to be done. But he's quite a limited player, and his only real use is booting people up in the air at the moment. I'm well, assuming that they're going to come in here and just sit in and try to Everton their way to a nil-nil, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, they're going to come and try and exactly, park the bus. Yeah. Problem is, they're not good enough defensively to do it. They're not well. Like, it's different with Everton, with a Sean Dyche, who coaches his team to play that way. If that's your primary way of playing, you can have success with it. If it's not, and you try to do it, you are going to make a lot of mistakes. They tried to do it last year. They came, tried to park the bus and hit us on the counter. And they got beaten 7-0 because they're a calamity. Um, also up front, they'll have Hoysland. I'm expecting it to be Anthony right side and Garnacho left side, even if Rashford's fit. He might go Rashford on the right because Anthony's a, a waste of a shirt. And he might just look to exploit the space that we leave down the flanks with Rashford and Garnacho because they're only mode of shifting the ball is going to be to pump it into the corners and have lads chase it. Because without yeah. Fernandez, without Ericsson, without Casemiro, you don't have anybody good enough to move the ball through the middle of the park. The lads you have there will get swamped by our press. Even with us missing Alexis, we'll have enough in midfield to swamp you. So you're going to have to go long. 
and you're going long against Virgil van Dijk and Ibu Kanate. So all the best. I, I don't see a team that they can put out that worries me. Even if they had most of the, if they had all everyone fit, I still wouldn't be all that worried about them. But with what they have, it, they're coming, in my opinion, they're coming to avoid a hammering. If they get out of Anfield with a two or three nil defeat, they'll be happy enough, I think. I see this as a game they're going to come and go full for Laney, to be honest. They're going to be awful to go one-on-one against and they're going to launch bits into the box and hope for something. That's it. Yeah, that's why I think McTominay, McTominay probably starts as, the, as a 10. I think McTominay starts as probably their most important player, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that something that... 18 months and 420 million in, the most important player they have in this game is Scott McTominay. That's, I mean, if you want to sum up everything that's wrong at United, there it is in one sentence. Um, What about us then, Carl? So we are top of the league. We do have some injury issues. Joel Matip has a torn ACL, will miss the rest of the season. Thiago is still, God knows how long away, from returning, Andy Robertson's still a few weeks away. Diogo Jota looks like he's still a couple of weeks away. Alexis, we don't really know when he'll be back. And Stefan Besetic is still out three months after Jürgen told us it was a little, 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 tiny, tiny, small, minute, minuscule injury. So we don't know when he'll be back either. Um, but we should absolutely have enough to, to put these lots to the sword. Now, the question is going to be, what is Jürgen going to do in midfield without Alexis McAllister? There were some auditions last night for a starting role. Um, fair to say that Endo, Curtis and Ryan Gravenberg all failed their, their audition. And if one of them starts, it's purely out of desperation. So what are you expecting from Liverpool Let's assume Ibu, Virgil, Costas, Zaboslai, Salah and Darwin all start. What does the rest of the team look like? Um, I know you've left Trent aside there wondering if I'm putting him Trent in the will start. Trent will start. The <laughs> yeah. question is where does yeah. he start? Yeah, I think he starts right back. That's I, I just think he's there. Um I'm going to go Ali, Trent, Canate, Van Dijk, Costas. Solosley. I want Jones starting this game. So do I. I want Jones starting this game and I think he will start left. I would potentially make this the game I would do your little thing for and make him the six and put Harvey Elliott on the left. But I don't think we're going to see that. Uh, I think Elliot will be sub again. So Endo, Jones, Sobel's lie at midfield, and then Salah, Nunez, Diaz up front. Yeah. I mean, I, I would start Joe Gomez. Yeah. And I'd start Trent as in midfield. As the six. Possibly as the six, because if Gomez is going to invert in, then Gomez becomes the defensive midfielder. Yeah, not the player. Not the player. Trent becomes the player. So yeah. I'd kind of be looking at maybe doing that. 
Is it ideal? No, it's not ideal, but uh, Christ, Carl Endo last night. I mean, look, he's had some he's had some good performances, uh, mostly against kind of weaker opposition. He obviously had that great cameo against Fulham where he scored a great goal and absolutely upscuttled um, Paulinho. But he, he's been woeful since. No, he was, no, to be fair, he was decent. He was pretty good against Sheffield United. He was woeful against Palace. And last night, I mean, as somebody said on Twitter, he was out there fighting for his life. <laughs> and he was losing that fight. And I know that it was a pre-planned sub to bring him off at half time, but he deserved to be brought off at half time because he'd been that bad. Now, not to say that the fellow that came on in his place was any better, not to say Curtis was any better, but he was dreadful. Hmm. And I do wonder, like, does he have the stamina to play game after game after game, even if it's only 45 minutes? Last season, Sam Maguire pointed this out to me in the summer when we bought him. His physical data fell off a cliff from where it was the year before. I think the under pressure lads have talked about this in, in good detail as well. You'd wonder have the legs just gone a little bit where, you know, he can give you 10 minutes one game, 50 the next, but then he's going to need a little break and it can't really be a whole lot more than that. He was so poor last night. And like, I've, I've watched that goal, their first goal back. Largely just to annoy myself because of the offside. But like, as I said last night, Curtis is having a little dance and seemingly trying to get their players to do the Macarena with him. And Endo comes trundling in like a pisshead trying to get hold of a bag of chips or something and just falls on his face. It is, it's atrocious. Um, But yeah, I, I think he will start. I think he'll start Endo. And he'll start Trent. And, and, and I would bet that the change he'll make during the game is he'll bring Joe Gomez on and he'll put Trent into midfield, which he sh- I think he should just start with. I think he's gone to it a couple of times. Trent into midfield, Joe at right back, Joe inverts in, they become a double pivot. And Joe does the defensive so- stuff and Trent is the ball player. Yeah. I think I think that's what he should start with, but I do think he'll start Endo. Well, um, I'm going to stick with Endo starting, but yeah, I don't expect this to be longer than... Well, you know what? You said he was better against some of the weaker teams. We've been talking about United being one of those, so maybe he'll be perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's not like they've got great midfielders that are going to outplay him. I would worry a little bit. I mean, as bad as Amrabat has been in a lot of his performances, he, he could still physically just monster Endo out of the way. And McTominay is a big, rangy, powerful runner. Just chop him down early, Endo, and you'll be okay, son. Um, so you're going Diaz left wing. I've said this to you before, and I've said it to Trev. I would be interested just to see what Harvey would look like left wing or to see what Dominic would look like left wing with Harvey as the right side at eight. Uh-huh. Just, just a little alteration. I mean, like you said, this is, you know, this is the equivalent of playing a championship team. So it's not really, but. These are a team that we should be beating. Even if it's for half an hour, I'd like to see Harvey get a run left wing and just see what it looks like. Yeah, I'd be absolutely open to that. I don't expect we're going to see it. I think Harvey should start this game, to be honest, after recent performances, but I don't expect to see him left 
of the I haven't I haven't been impressed by him when he starts though. No, that is. I love him off the bench because his energy and his and his technique works off the bench. I think when he starts, he he's not able to imprint himself on games well enough. That's I agree. Kid like. I agree, but also I think the ones who have been started recently haven't been playing well. So that's the only yeah. That's also why. very fair. <laughs> that's very very fair. Um, right, you're. Are you sticking with your six now? Damn straight. Beautiful. I'm going to be a little bit more reserved and say four nil. I'm going to go four nil. Guy, do you want to jump in with it with, with an L prediction here? United one nil. No. Get out. <laughs> uh, I will go in, but 5-1, I'll give them a goal. A late consolation. Maybe Rasmus Hoysen scores. McTominay's got to pump those numbers up more. Oh, Mc, that's it. Well, Scott McTominay, marksman. Um, this is a game we should win. It's a game we have to win. We want to make sure that when Arsenal come to Anfield in a week, they come in second place at best. Be a deal if they could drop some points this weekend as well. Um, but we want to make sure that we're still league leaders when Arsenal comes to town. Uh, right, we will leave it there. Carl, do you have anything to plug before we go? Uh, nah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> After the, uh, 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 the shortened version of Raw last night, we've done about an hour and 20 here. So, you know, just to make up for... For Trev giving it a half-hour's effort last night. I'm going to say that. He's going to hear this and he's going to be furious. Um, Hopefully, we have no Cody Gakbo levels of of interest. Yeah, of disinterest (laughs) this this weekend. And we win this game. We will have, obviously, post-match Raw after the game. It will be Trev, Carl and Jim Boardman. So you are freed from my inane ramblings uh there'll be a rival recon before the game as well so make sure you've listened to that and make sure you listen to absolutely everything that's coming out on anfield index and anfield index pro and we'll see you next week folks bye-bye we hope you enjoyed listening to this anfield index show please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically there's nothing quite like fan engagement and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.